the second you let Ukraine into NATO, NATO is at war with Russia. And that's why it's not going to happen. Uh, this has to get settled. You, Russia has to leave Ukrainian territory. And then we and only then can we talk about getting uh, Ukraine into NATO, which I don't think is a bad idea. But and we get arguably that that's why they invaded um, portions of Georgia and have taken Crimea, because that leaves all these countries with t- contested borders and they can't easily uh, apply to join NATO because NATO doesn't want anybody with a contested border because that easily turns into a shit show. Bingo. Thanks for explaining. Um, Liberal, I, you're back, um, and John and Liberal have their hands up, and Phil as well. So let's go, Liberal John, Phil. Yeah, I wanted to take advantage of uh, Patrick Fox being in the space. I love his experience. Um, Patrick, um, given that it's a chance, may have to allow Russian forces to advance and... Ukrainian forces to um, reset and strategically... Um, Did we lose their audio again? They have. I can't hear them. Uh, I'll drop him down. Hang on. Liberal, uh, you're back at listener. I think we lost your audio. I could he- hear you for a second, and then you cut out mid-sentence and uh, went to mute. So not sure if you're having issues. If you are, come back up. Love to have you. Uh, John, Phil. Uh, yeah, I just have a quick minute, and I'm hopping off in uh head in the bed because I'm tired. Um, for those of you who are interested in open source satellite imagery, uh, Sentinel got a pass today over Donbass. It's perfect. There's almost no cloud cover. It's it's absolutely perfect. Um, so there's some fantastic new imagery out, 10 meter resolution. Or, so it's it's really good. Almost no cloud cover over almost the entire northern half of Donbass, you know, which is where we're interested in. So it's great if you're into that kind of thing, which I am. And with that, I'm I'm heading to bed. Night, y'all. Have a good one. Um, hi. Um, I just want to say I'm like new to all this, so I appreciate you bearing with me. I enjoy listening, and I apologize if I don't understand all the rules, and I don't mean to interject when I'm not supposed to. So just nope, thanks. you're fine. Uh, our basic rules of order is. Anybody can come up and talk. Um, we typically like people to raise their hands so we can move through people as first come, first serve. But go ahead, and then we'll go to Phil. Okay, gotcha. Thank you. Uh, okay, we'll go Phil and then Dirk. I just had a quick question for Patrick. Um, what is your opinion on Snake Island and you know how Russia has lost you know somewhere between 50 and $100 million of um, anti-aircraft equipment for that small tiny piece of land including all the people to uh man those equipment i'm sure they're not um you know cheap to train thank you and a helicopter and a battleship and a tugboat and um <laughs> a lot more people yeah but, the, sorry no that's fine right yeah the obsession over that little spit of land is is I don't know. I, I think it, it, the holding it has the, the the idea of holding it has become more important than the terrain necessarily um, intrinsically warrant. So owning the, the the idea of owning the thing is more is more important than the reality of owning the thing. If the Russians want to keep putting very expensive, hard to replace stuff on that, you know, tiny little plot of land so the Ukrainians can shoot at it, more oh, power to them. Uh, keep doing that, guys. Absolutely. <laughs> 
Absolutely. Uh, it, as as I understand it, it's kind of the line of demarcation between Romanian and Ukrainian waters in the Black Sea. So it's more or less a lookout point and a choke point. Uh, and if Russia holds that ground or that island, they can uh, deter or take out any Ukrainian naval traffic, commercial or or military that tries to move through that area so it's it's an area denial tactic uh and also because they lost the moscova and its anti-air capabilities or its its shield its dome for russian assets moving in the black sea they need some anti-air space so they're using that because they can park big missiles and big radar systems that can cover large areas uh so it's serving as their de facto anti-air battleship because the anti-air battleship they had is now safely resting on the bottom of the Black Sea. Well, that's right. But the point, and yeah, the the question they're going to have to answer is how many batteries of, how many missile batteries are we prepared to get shelled out of existence trying to maintain this lookout post where we're not really conducting major operations anyway? I mean, sure. If they want to keep doing it, have at it, boy. Yeah. I, I, I love this, uh, wash, rinse, repeat method they've got going on here. It it worked miraculously for the Ukrainians. They just let them build up enough. I don't know if they're looking for a head count or a dollar figure or what, but it seems like they just wipe the, spl- wipe the slate like an Etch-a-Sketch periodically and then let them recharge the island and wipe the slate again. I was thinking too, is there any claim to um, potential oil resources of the Black Sea from the island that, you know, because they couldn't get Odessa, they couldn't get to Odessa. So does that substitute for, you know, that... I- I think the probably the oil and gas resources they want most are in that Sea of Azov and probably in the eastern parts of uh, land Ukraine. Excuse my poor terminology there. Um, onshore assets are, I think there are shale deposits, and I, I frankly haven't looked a whole lot into the energy resources that exist in Ukraine. Somebody sent me a uh, pretty detailed report weeks or months ago and i was so busy in the space i didn't have a whole lot of time to review it um i i don't think that's why they're trying to hold snake island i think snake island is a way for them to choke off economic uh commerce that's going on or could go on out of the black sea they can cut off grain transports uh they know what's coming in and out it's it's a way to watch the Russian back and normally they wouldn't have needed that island it wouldn't have mattered to them I think it it really stepped up their uh, need to take that and utilize it as territory when they sank the Moscow that that kind of screwed up the whole Russian plan for the Black Sea so they're improvising here by using that island and they've had to do it at great cost but obviously it's not something they're willing to give up or they probably wouldn't have reinforced it so many times i mean they've they've been getting their ass kicked for that little rock and if they didn't need it desperately for some reason they they would have thrown in the towel but and it shows that they suck at using their anti-aircraft and air defense capabilities as well as portland mentioned in here in the past and i think he knows a little bit about uh radar equipment uh some of the radar systems they're using on snake island that have been taken out and had to be replaced 
are not, uh, there aren't a whole lot of spares laying around. So his calculation was that if they're pulling more of these and replacing them on Snake Island, they're going to have to uh, pull it out of area defense that they have around Russia, which will one take time because it's not just sitting ready. So they'll have to unmount it, unhook it, pack it up, ship it somewhere, get it to the Black Sea, put it on a boat and take it to the island. Uh, And presumably the people that are most well-equipped to do that were already on the island and are probably fish food at this point. So you're using the B team or the C team to unhook stuff. And they're not to say they aren't capable of doing it, but they're going to do it at a much slower pace. It's just, they're, they're dumping a lot of time and effort into this, that if, if it weren't for something, they, they wouldn't spend the resource. But uh, as, as Patrick has mentioned, it's, it's not a, terribly a it's not big and b it's not valuable in and of itself it's just an area denial and a a way for them to choke off ukrainian commerce which is essentially their ability to it's the same thing we're doing with russian oil you can look at it that way we're we're choking off russia's ability to sell oil on the global market as best we can right now and yes they're squeezing ways around that but uh russia's trying to respond in kind and choke off Ukraine's ability to move grain because the the most efficient way you can do that is on a cargo ship. Um, I've opined long enough. Let's go to Ben and then Dirk. Morning, Ben. Hello, everyone. Good Good morning again. Uh, Thanks a lot, Ryan, for holding the ship. Um, I have a question for for the audience. I don't think anyone on the panel right now can answer it, but it regards uh, both Italian, uh, what's going on in Italy at the moment, uh, so if we've got uh, Italian friends who can explain to us why uh, Draghi suddenly had to leave the, um, the the NATO summit, that would be great. And also, I'm wondering about what's going on in um, in Romania these days. Uh, if you know, if there were some friendly Romanians lurking in the dark, um, who could come up and tell us about it? That'd be absolutely grand. I'd be very happy. Thanks. I second that request. Um, Derp, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say um, that uh, I, I'm just, I was just thanking everyone for welcoming me and because I'm new to all this. And so I'm enjoying, you, you guys obviously know way more about all this stuff than I do. And so I'm enjoying hearing this conversation. And maybe if I feel like I can chime in sometime later on, I will, but you guys are way, obviously have way more knowledge about this than I do, but I'm enjoying the conversation. I guess that's all I had to say. Stick around for a while. We've been here 24-7 for going on four or five months now. Um, We are exclusively dedicated to news and current events going on in Ukraine and ways we can... uh, uh, you know, assist them, but we do, you know, OSINT analysis stuff. I hate that word, but I'll go ahead and use it. Um, and uh, we have experts and former military service members and uh, economic experts. We have subject matter experts of all flavors in here. Uh, if you want to check us out, there's a YouTube channel as well where we've got a summary of some of our uh, more seasoned or well-heeled speakers. Uh, I think there's a few guys with stars on their shoulders and some other uh, people, former SEAL commander, and uh, I encourage you and any other potential new listeners to go check us out there as well. Uh, and Maria Aid. Yeah, yeah I, I was oh, just sorry. getting ready to sit. 
getting ready to segue onto Maria Aid, we've uh, since we started this, since Walter started this space back in February, uh, he was originally uh, supporting a Ukrainian nonprofit org that was uh, soliciting money or uh, medical aid that was being used on the front lines, things like tourniquets. Uh, some people didn't necessarily feel comfortable donating to a website with a whole bunch of Cyrillic alphabet stuff uh, that was written in Ukrainian because they didn't understand what they were donating to. So some people who were affiliated with Operation Unifier out of Canada, which was the Canadian mission to go and train the Ukrainian military and get them ready for this invasion that they're now facing and fighting against, decided to set up a nonprofit here in North America to try and aid in that effort. So if you're interested and have the resources, please check out Maria Aid and consider donating. That yeah, goes for I, you uh, and everybody else. Thanks. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to check it out. And I'll, I'm making sure I follow all you guys on Twitter now because I, I went through all your names and I followed. So hopefully I can. And I updated my name, by the way. I don't, I don't know why it, it's... I, I put Derp as my name. My name, I, I updated it. It's JD Wagner. So I, I don't know. I, I you're, probably you're derp, that as a joke. Derp from now, now on JD. Oh, oh geez. <laughs> <laughs> but thanks anyways. The internet for everybody. <laughs> Thank you. Anytime. Uh, ben, okay. So I'll let that... you guys go on. Sure. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Go ahead. No, you're fine. I was uh, going to ask my friend Ben here if he got his new office squared away. I think he uh, negotiated for a corner office yesterday because his boss was stuck in an elevator. No, I'm working from home. Uh, yeah. But um, there's, can, can, I, can I make a quick, quick advertisement for uh, a good friend who's um, apparently, um, let me say, Physical practice, that's that's how you call it in the US. Uh, a gym instructor. Um, his name is Vlad, he's very friendly. Uh, and he has checked the the body of the the bodies of the um, the leaders of the of the G eight uh, the G seven summit. Um, or whether the NATO summit, either way. And he has declared to a very friendly um, uh, press corps um in russia that they were not looking great so he gave them some great advice do not drink too much alcohol uh give up on bad habits do more sports and then you will not have uh, buddies like the ones they have and right now um he and it's a quote it's a direct quote from the from the president of the russian federation uh they have disgusting buddies uh, I wouldn't want to watch that uh, to see them undress above the waistline. Um, <laughs> so, do we need to get everybody on the G8 riding around shirtless on horseback now, just to prove them wrong, or do we need to send a bunch of onesies to Russia? Uh, I, I love that new military uniform. It's just a zip-up front all the way down. You know, quick. I guess I don't know. It's like, like a, I, it's like a it, flight suit, but I didn't know generals wore flight suits. I don't know, but what Vlad just said, I think, accounts for a declaration of war. Uh, you don't talk to it. You don't. You you can you cannot say this to the French president. He's working hard. Look at him. He's got his. Um, he's got his. I don't know. It's it's very very unfriendly. And yeah, I, I say we declare war. You don't talk like this. Um, too much is too much. There's a line. You can kill people. 
uh, kidnap children, uh, but you you can't you can't talk smack about the, our president. When has France ever entered a war it didn't want to surrender from? Ha ha ha! I've got one word for you: Yorktown. There. Shots fired. You guys should really just change your flag to white. Oh jeez. It was white, you ignorance. <laughs> it actually was white. Uh, let's let's go to liberal and then Joanne. Yeah, I just want to remind the listeners that Patrick Fox is in the audience, and if you have military questions, we should take advantage of the fact that he's here, uh, participating and in the audience. Absolutely, the guy's not a larper. That uh, that uniform is real in his profile pic. Uh, Joanne, go ahead. Good morning, two forty-five a.m. in Boston. Two questions. Could I have a two-minute summary of what OSINT is, and then could Patrick give a longer explanation of what a NAMUS, N-A-M-U-S, is? Um, Thank you. I cannot opine for two minutes on what OSINT is. It's it's an acronym for open source intelligence. It's really just uh, some probably some kids on the internet that made up a fancy name for being really good at looking up and analyzing information that can be gleaned from public sources. Um, okay, open source intelligence. When I read the newspaper. Yep. yep. Well, it's it's a little more in depth than that. Uh, somebody was referring to the firm satellite data earlier this evening. Firms is a NASA satellite that's used to detect wildfires around the world. It's actually a, probably a network of satellites. But um, they read information in the infrared spectrum, and they can detect the size and and uh, intensity of fires around the world. So you you can publicly okay. access yep. that info. Okay. There's all kinds of other stuff, um, webcams that are available. People watch uh, train traffic that moves around the world. That was one of the ways that oh. uh, a lot of people were alerting one another to the buildup of military assets in Russia that were on okay. the border of Ukraine and in Belarus. Uh, okay, I got I'll it. Let I got Patrick it. respond I... about, I think that's probably the missile system you were referring to with your second question. Yeah. Yeah, the, the NASAMS is um, it, it's a, it was a joint development project with Norway, and basically the, someone got the idea of taking what is usually an air-to-air missile and putting it on a ground platform. So basically, it's a truck, and on the back of it, it's got a huge box launcher, which carries six AIM-20 AMRAMs, which is uh, the AIM-20 is a it's an advanced medium-range air-to-air missile, and this this system fires it from the ground and it's, it's a, it's short to medium range. Uh, I think the effective firing range is like 30 kilometers, something like that. Um, and it's, it, it's basically used against, uh, against a uh, low and, and medium altitude target. And the accuracy is supposedly it's pretty good. Uh, to my knowledge, it's never actually been used in combat before. Does it shoot and move or shoot and sit? Uh, I believe it is at least uh, it, I mean, it's truck. It's truck mounted. I believe it is mobile. Yeah, I think that that's the whole design behind it is its mobility. It's made to be mounted on the back of a Humvee, so it it doesn't have to sit anywhere for too long. Uh, 
I don't think it can fire on the move, but uh, it can lie in wait. And once they have to take a shot, they can get down move the road after. in rapid order. Okay. I I worked with a group on Twitter for a while called the Disaster Assist Team, DAT, and we kept track of hurricanes and fires and volcanoes and just uh, got out in good information and stopped misinformation. When the officials in Philly told people to go up to their attics to get away from the flood, we said, don't do it unless you have a fireman with you because otherwise you'll drown in the attic in the attic because you can't get through to the roof um so that i heard about the uh learned about the satellites tracking the fires from that um i have a different question i've just acquired a radio that has short wave can i uh get to english speak english speaking ukrainian short wave stations I, silence i have no <laughs> radio expertise in that regard asking the wrong panel i'm afraid to tell you okay um finance are you still awake you, you can look on online and you can find out frequencies with ham radio sorry to interject but yeah yeah you can you can find out all the information i don't want to get into technical details but like i i i I have a history of technical knowledge on the subject but you can you can find what you need to know on on the internet, if you, if you look hard Google. enough. Oh, okay. Yeah, I thought I was Google talking device. to finance, but it's derp. Yeah, it's sorry. J.D. Wagner now, but you can yeah, call him sorry. derp. Yeah, <laughs> You can call okay. me derp if you want. It's um, fine. If, fi yeah, you if, fi if finance is still awake, I'm interested. I read an article that said uh, the SWIFT banks were still being used by a couple of people. They were still getting online to Russia. And I thought that was pretty much closed off. I thought that was about 98% closed off as well, but I'm sure finance could uh, fill us in. I don't know if he had his coffee this evening, so he may have nodded off. Okay. <laughs> you know what? I'm no, going there, to have to I can, start. I can try to insert it. Okay. Thank you. You took him into the SWIFT system? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Most, most Russian banks have been severed from the SWIFT, uh, Swift system. Uh, yeah. A first pack, like a first bunch of them, very very early in the war. So I would say first early March or something like this. Uh, then um, of the past month, an extra couple of banks have been removed as well. But you still have some being open, and the reason for this is very simple. Um, uh, I was about to say Germany. Russia still exports oil and gas to Europe. Uh, yeah. Europeans need to pay for that oil, oil and gas. Uh, considering yeah. that we're not going to go around traveling with uh, suitcases full of billion dollars, we need uh, to send them money. And for that money to be sent, it needs, at the very minimum, uh, Russian banks to be to be open. And that Russian bank that has been in the news recently is Gazprom Bank. So it's the financial arm of the Gazprom um, uh, conglomerate, um, which right. is, okay. as the name indicates, specializes in the export of, well, production and export, uh, maybe not production, uh, uh, transport and sale of gas. And as a result, uh, it will always, as long as Europe does not, does 
does import gas from from uh, Russia, uh, there will be at least one bank with um, uh, SWIFT um, uh, accounts. Otherwise, with sorry, with access to the SWIFT system. Otherwise, we cannot pay for it. And if we don't pay for it, they don't send it anymore. Okay, got it. I'm going to have to start book bookmarking articles so I can see exactly what I need to ask questions about. Thank you very much. Oh, we're always happy to 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 have this sort of questions. Uh, the the bookmarking questions are the best questions. There's so much to learn. Now I have to find out where I can learn Ukrainian, one of the downloadable apps or something. Uh, Duolingo does that very well. They've entirely redone their Ukrainian to English um, language. Um, uh, Duolingo, okay. Yeah. And I'll download uh, it was, that and try it, that. It was recommended on this very space by Ferlaine. She's a Ukrainian translator, so I, I guess she knows what she's speaking oh, about. Oh, Ferlaine, excellent recommendation. Okay, I'll try that. There's so much to learn. What's a good and thing? It's a good thing. And yes, and there really should be something so that we know when people are going to sleep. Like, I know someone who sleeps all the time i mean he's on the space all the time but sometimes he's sleeping sometimes 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 we almost all asleep. I, I don't know he may just be away from his computer or phone at the moment sometimes uh, he's almost asleep but when a fight starts he like gets out of bed and wakes up so that he can help help with the fight <laughs> uh a few people who co-host the space have kids and have to get up and change their diapers in the middle of the night if i if i'm not mistaken so uh yeah we we have people on at all hours um uh, let's go to azobstall avenger uh, my check loud and clear go ahead my check my check you guys got me yep yes good. oh um, question for uh, for Pat. I don't know if, uh, who's just speaking. Um, uh, happy two forty five. Also from Boston. Um, uh, if you could uh, close your hot mic, that'd be great. Um, Pat, um, I, I was quite curious. You mentioned something about um, the U.S. Air Force Chief, um, essentially the new the new ops plan or the planning uh, for the U.S. Air Force. Um, accounting i just to paraphrase accounting for less planes and less readiness moving forward and that was a mistake i was curious if um you could comment on all the controversy around the uh, u.s marines um and their uh force ops plan for the next 10 years the i can't remember future core they had some nifty name for it i was wondering if you could comment on that for us i know this is a space dedicated primarily to ukraine you know that's my my focus here as well, but um, I do believe that um, uh, the, the U.S. deployments may be necessary. You know, we just we just announced uh, further deployments to the NATO eastern flank. So I'm curious how that how that Marine Ops plan plays in, and uh, if you could comment on any of the controversy around it. Thank you. Uh, this is one of those areas where I'm in the process of digging into it myself. So I will say just enough to cover what I know and not make a fool of myself by, by trying to go too far. Um, and yeah, that was Secretary of the Air Force Kendall. His uh, general position was that we are going to have a smaller Air Force with less airframes that is not going to be able to fight a two-front engagement and will be for the foreseeable future less capable than it previously was. Uh, the Marines are moving forward with 
what appears to be, and again, I'm still in the process of digging into this, a smaller, uh, what they call more mobile uh, fighting force. They're doing away with a great deal of their armor and their mechanized units in favor of uh, more infantry. They're also going to cut back on towed artillery and uh, helico- uh, helicopter assets. Uh, I, I, I am withholding judgment until I can read the entire thing and digest it. But on the face of it, I, I, I don't immediately understand their thinking. I'll just say that. Oh, thank you. Sorry, I know that was a very incomplete answer. It's okay. I, I think in everybody who, who's on the space a lot um, prefers when somebody says they don't know rather than speculate because um, this is a society of, you know, there's a lot of experts here. And if you, if you, if you shoot out your butt, you get shot down pretty quick in this space. So um, thank you for that. Even somebody with your expertise showing off the discipline you have of thought in, uh, in answering that. Thank you so much. I have one, one other question about Ukraine. You mentioned um, all the things that, um, that can be done uh, that we might have used to have done in um, proxy wars, Cold War, what have you. And I also read somewhere that there was um, talk about how the U.S. could use contractors um, to fight in this war in a way that, um, and, and it's, it's been discussed tonight, how we could potentially be using, you know, essentially a flying tiger type situation, like you mentioned. I, I think th- there's, you mentioned the, the political aspect of it. I think the political aspect is the aspect of it that's holding things back. And that's not a shot at the Biden administration, which has been extremely supportive and far more supportive than the previous administration, you know, almost certainly would have been uh, to Ukraine in this fight. But I think that what it's really frustrating for Americans to see Ukrainian children dying and being kidnapped and wondering why the most powerful military in the world isn't intervening and helping. And I think what I what I try to point to that people people need to realize is that it's not our fight and the Ukrainians are fighting the hell out of it and they're doing a great job of it. And it's been decided that the best way we can help them is to give them what they what they're asking for as best we can. And that diplomacy is a dance. And it's there's a lot that goes on that we don't know about. And, um, and there's a lot that goes on that we do know about. And they think sometimes it's for effect. And when we don't say things, sometimes that's for effect. But I think it's, you know, people keep pointing to World War II and appeasement and things like that. And I would also point to the Cuban Missile Crisis, where that was a dance that was very carefully played out. And essentially, you know, U.S. troops, U.S. airmen were killed during the Cuban Missile Crisis. But... It was kept under wraps for a lot of for a lot of very good reasons. And um, I was wondering if you could comment a little bit on the political aspect of what's going on, and why some of the things you're hoping, and we all wish could be done, aren't being. Sure. And what the crux of it is exactly kind of what you were, were talking about. Americans are very used to having some tin pot dictator somewhere do something we don't like, that is either against our interests or causes a moral outrage. And we go in, we kill a whole bunch of people, we wave the flag and say, we're the good guys, we stop the bad guy. When the aggressor has nuclear weapons, then everyone has to walk much more softly to avoid the direct clash that we avoided throughout the entirety of the Cold War, because nobody wants a strategic exchange. Nobody. Not us, not the Russians. But the Russians are a little crazy, especially under Vladimir Putin. So nobody wants to push them to a point where they think they have to initiate a strategic exchange because they're going to go out anyway which is why I, I know uh, we had some people earlier who were saying, why don't we just go in ourselves? Well, that's why. 
And there's a there's some genuine fear of that. And that's not, you know, that's nothing to call people down for uh, uh, who are very concerned about this. People should be very concerned about this. There are entire uh, branches of strategic study devoted to how do you work around nuclear weapons for good reason. Nobody wants to have that kind of exchange. It would it would change life radically for the worse for every surviving person on the planet. So then it gets political because every nation has a different idea as to what that looks like. Number one. Number two, every nation has a different relationship with Russia, some better, some worse. The Germans are the constant scapegoat for the for the worst. Uh, More dependency on Russia. Yeah, I, I mean that's basically what it is. And everyone has a point at which they're they're going to say, you know, no more. We we don't want to do anymore. We this doesn't impact us enough to do any more than it currently does. And that last one is one that everyone's struggling to find. Right now, the U.S. with some significant domestic opposition continues to do more. I think that's probably good. Not because we need to do the moral thing every time. I know that's not exactly the most warm and fuzzy notion, but it's a, it's a real one. Saving Ukraine serves U.S. national interests. And on that basis, I am completely in favor of it because I, I would rather a pro-Western and a sovereignly independent Ukraine than some war-torn rump state that is either tacitly or overtly under the heel of Moscow on NATO's borders. This is something that is directly in U.S. and NATO interest. Therefore, we should help the Kiev government to defend itself. This, this is the basis of, of my thinking on this. Unfortunately, I mean, the U.S. just announced a major shift of, of troops into Europe. It's going to bring us back up over 100,000 troops, well above. We're establishing the headquarters of a new U.S. Fifth Corps in Poland. Meanwhile, the British have just decided to reduce their army further to under 75,000 troops. I mean, th this is this is NATO. Uh, the Germans still, despite promising 100 billion euro, we don't know what that's going to look like. No plans have been made. Meanwhile, the Poles, again, are doubling the size of their military over the next several years to 300,000 troops or more. So there's a very, very mixed bag when it comes to NATO. And if you're going to do something like this through NATO, NATO has to be united. NATO is not united. The Americans so, and the Brits have leaps and bounds of additional technology that they can bring to bear instead of boots, I would argue. Um, I wonder if any reductions in Air Force manned airframes are not going to be vastly offset by the number of unmanned airframes that we can bring to bear. Well, I mean, this this mess has shown us that whatever you're using, you're going to take a lot of cash. If it's, a, well, if it's even a near-peer conflict, you're going to take a lot of cash. The notion of reducing your force at this point, it, you know, I mean, people, but the point is people are making that decision. Nations are making that decision. And so NATO is not united on this on this note as much as they keep saying they are. They're not. Their, na their national actions keep telling us that they're not. So if you're the U.S., you have you have to make the decision to do it on your own. And some of the stuff can't be done on its own because we don't have the gear. We don't have a lot of this ex-Soviet stuff in inventory that we could rapidly send to the poll or excuse me, to the Ukrainians. Lloyd Austin Sorry. went over. I think Lloyd Austin's words were he went over there to apply the spurs. Um, I I may be misquoting him there, but I believe Axel was the one who used that language. Um, so I'm pretty right. sure it's a direct quote. I, but so, I, yeah, if you're the U.S., what do you do? Well, you, you have limited you have limited options without uh, somebody cooperating with you. You can send you can send what are ostensibly contractors. That's really risky. Nobody's want, nobody wants to do that. 
the Biden administration, after its experience in Afghanistan, does not want a situation where it has identifiably American troops coming home in body bags. That's just not something they're prepared to tolerate. So you can send them a whole lot of weapons. Well, we're doing that. Well, we're sending them a lot of weapons. Not a whole lot, but a lot. Uh, the problem is, A, One third of the a, world's javelins. That's a lot. Yeah, a, they need a whole lot more because we're rediscovering the fact that modern war is an industrial enterprise. And number two, there's significant domestic opposition to it. So the politics of this are very, very murky, and they operate on three levels. The domestic, the international, and then the NATO. And they inter- they interact with one another. And almost nobody is on exactly the same page on this one. So that is why you're saying, I I think, and this is all my assessment, that I think that is why you're seeing a lot of scrambling, a lot of, you know, oh, we're doing this, we're doing this, we're doing this, and then they don't do it because somebody at the last minute pulls out or pulls the plug or says, no, we want to do it a different way, and then it goes into a whole other round of discussions. That's why this is so shambolic looking, because nobody's leading nobody's everybody's not on the exact same page and everyone's got their own priority so on the political front that's kind of my two cents so to tell you i just wanted to just follow up uh um, mr fox i've been on this space since since february that's the most articulate distillation of the answer to the question why don't we do more uh that i've heard in three months so thank you so much and for your analysis and your previous service i'm gonna drop down thanks everybody go ahead don't well, thank you, Avenger. I appreciate that. Thanks, brother. Um, okay, so, so to tie into all of this, right, what, one really important factor that needs help, say, um, helping, say, German lack of action or drag, um, it has to be made for the German government to make such decisions. One way of making it easier uh, for them to make good decisions is to make sure that there is no more energy dependence on Russia, right? Now, they, can, they can't really help themselves necessarily. But they can be helped. They can be provided with alternative sources of energy. Um, I just woke up a couple of hours ago and I was seeing some, uh, how should I say, some news from Canada. Ryan, you used to work in oil and gas, right? Um, Wasn't there something about more Canadian exports to Europe? Yeah, I was just uh, reading up on that. Somebody sent it to me probably an hour or two ago, and I had not had a chance to delve into it yet. But it sounds like uh, Canada's interested in building an LNG terminal on their east coast in a rapid fashion. And they are a top manufacturer of an exporter of oil and gas. Uh, so... I know they're a major exporter of oil. I'm not sure about their gas exports, but this would greatly increase their capacity and it would uh, tie in really well with the fact that the Germans have decoupled Nord Stream and are trying to uh, tie that into a floating regasification terminal. So we could liquefy natural gas on the east coast of Canada, sail it across the pond and uh, unload it in Germany. So why wasn't that done before? Why hasn't this just been the normal way for Germans to get their gas? Um, logistics. Uh, honestly, the, they're not compressing Nord Stream gas down to a liquefied state that takes uh, energy and energy is money. Compressors, you know, cost money to run. Uh sailing it across the water and then moving it back into a gas state so you can pump it through your natural gas uh, 
infrastructure is it's just going to cost a little more prices will be a little higher because transportation costs go up that's that's what midstream is but slight costs monetary mm-hmm. slight monetary costs right there uh, yeah big. when when russia wasn't committing large-scale genocide and invading their neighbors uh it was easy enough to allow them to build their own pipeline right to the front door of germany and they were offering sweet deals on price so they got everybody hooked on their product uh, do you have any idea of the capacity of this lng terminal that's being built out in canada and how long n- that's going to take nothing was mentioned on capacity um so I have no idea how long it would take. Those aren't terribly quick operations to get up and running. Um, I know they were building a Chenier plant in Louisiana for a couple of years because it was intended in initially as an import terminal in the U.S. And mid-construction uh, prices changed so dramatically here because of uh, what they called the shale revolution, that it was no longer a need to import liquefied natural gas to the U.S. So they essentially turned around all the valves and turned it into a compressor facility and a liquefaction facility instead of a regasification plant. Um, Is it really simple? Is it just like with an air conditioner? You just turn the valve around and you have a... No, I think there was probably a whole lot of compressors required to reconfigure that plant uh it's been it cost them a couple more years in construction and probably a couple billion more dollars in investment to get that uh switched around but they had already laid enough pipeline leading up to this port facility or the 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 spot where the the land infrastructure touches the water that they couldn't just you know throw it away and, and walk off and and not turn it into some kind of uh investment vehicle or you know cash cash flow generator uh, it's done really well. I, all that to say, I, I don't think this is something Canada is going to get done in 2022. Um, it it may be possible if they, you know, brought government abilities to bear, uh, kind of like, uh, oh shoot, what do they call that here in the U.S.? Um, sorry, I just drew a blank. Um, where the president can basically command industry to um, prioritize. Yeah. You know, I if they were trying to expedite the process, they they could maybe conceivably do it by the end of next year, but that's a, a huge undertaking. So it's it's a long-term solution. It's not a short-term solution. Biden can say use the Defense Production Act. That's like the word you- I was looking for. Thank you very much. I don't, I'm sure there's something similar to the Defense Production Act in Canada. And if, um, Trudeau wanted to take that route, they could expedite the process a bit, but it's it's still long and complex and requires a bunch of engineering. It's not something somebody has just sitting on a shelf that they can go turn on in a couple of months. Okay, so this is principally about natural gas. There's also been some talk about um, making sure that Russia can't make too much money off of the oil that they, that they sell, right? Um, wasn't there something at G7 about some sort of scheme to make... To, to make a maximum price for Russian oil. Do you understand how that's supposed to work? Because I'm, I, I'm getting a lot of questions. I, I don't know if I understand it quite right. I, it, it seems like a complex process where they would hold some of this money in escrow and basically scrape a little of their um, spot price off the top and remit that back to Ukraine. But frankly, to me, it sounds a little more complicated than... Uh, 
just cutting off their flow. The issue there is a bunch of these European countries are still dependent on Russian oil and gas. So people are trying to thread a needle here and not uh, not have to damage their own economies. And they're trying to figure out a way they can still buy this oil and not feel bad about it on the back end. Uh, I would personally recommend they just find a new supplier for their addiction. So the Russian oil all came by pipeline to Europe, right? What are the logistical challenges? No, it, it didn't all come by pipeline. Um, mostly the stuff that's still coming, the stuff that's coming by pipeline is is what has not been curtailed. Um, the sanctions that were put in place by the EU and the UK and the US only applied to ship-based cargoes. It didn't apply to the Druzba pipeline or some of the other smaller arteries that feed into Europe. Um, so you're saying that it's not really a problem to just switch suppliers and get oil by tanker from somewhere else? If they want to commandeer some of those pipelines, yes, they could. Uh, Hungary is landlocked, so they're one of the countries that earns money off of the Druzba pipeline because they operate a segment of it that runs through their country. Essentially, they have a, a tax they can charge or transportation fees, um, and they earn a little income off of that. They also have a tap on the line, for lack of a better term, so they get crude oil for their own domestic consumption that they can refine and utilize. They get the pass-through transportation costs because the Druzba line feeds out to uh, that little spit of water between Italy and Europe. And they, um, Rosneft has an export terminal there where they sell oil uh, and move it to the world's consumers. Um, if the Europeans wanted to take custody of that pipeline between Hungary and the coast, they could conceivably bring ships of oil in that way and deliver new oil to Hungary. But that's a complicated process. There's people that own those pipelines. I'm sure Rosneft owns a majority stake in them, but I don't doubt that they cut in uh, family members of local politicians who are very influential so they could get a cut of the cake as well. That's pretty much how this stuff works. Historically speaking, uh, the Medvedchuk guy that got arrested in Ukraine uh, initially bought a stake in the refinery that went up in Russia. Uh, he paid $40,000 initially for a 40-something percent stake in a refinery that costs, uh, I want to say, a billion, maybe more. My my memory's a little hazy at the moment. and And then somehow through some weird financial contracts and, and changes in the arrangement, he ended up owning 90% of this refinery. That's just a, you know, one small example of how it, it pays to uh, do business with Russia if you have no moral compass and you can get yourself filthy rich on paper um, just by looking the other way and facilitating Russian kleptocracy. Um, Hungary's one example. They're probably the, the biggest stick in the mud and the most dependent on Russian product. Uh, they're definitely not the largest consumer. I want to say Germany probably is, uh, but I could be wrong on that. How easy is it to reverse the flow in a, in a pipeline? I know that for natural gas, um, flow going one way 
can be higher than the flow than the maximum flow going the other way, and that's to do with the arrangement of compressor stations. Is that also true for crude oil pipelines? Yeah, the, the same logic would flow. Um, when you build pipelines, there's elevation changes that happen. If you think of it in your head, normally, you know, things are flat and it's it's all the same. But when people are engineering pipelines, if you're going up a hill or a mountain, you need additional compressors or pumps to move liquid up a hill. Um, so things would have to be re-engineered. It's not something that could necessarily happen quickly. Uh, Plenty of valves are engineered to flow in a certain direction and not the other. Um, check valves are that way. Uh, it wouldn't be a terribly quick and simple process, but it's much quicker than laying a whole new pipeline. Uh, the infrastructure is already there. These are things that can be worked out. It's it's not simple, but it's, it's infinitely quicker than laying whole new uh, supply chains out. And if you wanted to upgrade such a pipeline, is it just the compressors that you'd need to up or some valves as well and how, how much how much time really and i don't really care about money here necessarily i i don't know how big these extent of these pipelines are i'm i'm only a pipeline expert in so far as i used to procure a whole lot of uh oil field pipe valves and fittings as it's called in the business um I'm not an oil and gas engineer, and I did not ever design any of these systems. Uh, I saw them put in. It wouldn't be a simple task, but it, again, it's infinitely simpler than laying and welding all these pipe segments, which would take years and years. Um, they could do this in a matter of months. I think it would probably take them longer to procure all the materials uh, and get everything set up to flip it around and turn it the other direction but this isn't this is probably about as difficult as relaying some of the tracks that they've had to do to get grain moved to ports in europe it's it's not insurmountable it's daunting but not impossible it's like making like baking a really really big multi-tiered cake right it's fine each individual step is fine it's just a lot of effort to actually put into it to, to, to get it all done right it's not that any individual bit of it is difficult no that's fine we have engineers who are used to do all of that stuff but yeah it's just a it's a it would be a long and arduous task there are plenty of engineers that can do the maths figure it out figure out where you need to place new pumps um all this stuff has been done the information is there we're not trying to design a new rocket to get to the moon this isn't difficult for people that work in the business uh, they could turn this out in a wartime effort in a matter of days and then it would just be implementing the plan because it's fundamental probably sourcing all the equipment and getting ready to go would would take as as much time as installing you know or retrofitting the existing infrastructure yeah i wonder if the gas in budapest is still on the 484 and it's at the regulated price i should ask someone later today um so hungary actually implemented something funny we keep talking about hungary and oil now um that they're getting through the Druzhba pipeline so do you know what they've done um they now have a regulated price for petrol that's gasoline and for diesel for um, you know individual use uh for, for private use at 484 uh 
a liter. That's one euro twenty, give or take, just over one euro twenty, one euro twenty one, one euro twenty two. Maybe they have it a little bit. Um, Approximately uh, four fifty a gallon. Um, maybe, yeah, but for European standards, that's that's pretty. Cheap. That's extremely low for European standards. That's about what I'm paying here in Oklahoma right now. But we have artificially depressed prices even for u.s standards just because um you know we've we've got a bunch of it around here yeah and oklahoma is not gonna tax um petrol a whole lot is it we tax it plenty um they were talking about temporarily suspending it but yeah there's there's enough tax on it we what we don't do is subsidize fuel prices and then end up in a situation where if we unsubsidize them suddenly, there would be riots in the street. And that's precisely the predicament that a bunch of European countries have landed themselves in, uh, not necessarily with the people and at the consumer level, but their industries have gotten spoiled with cheap Russian energy prices, and they can turn out and operate their economies with a cheap fuel input, and now they're facing a situation where they have to redo their calculation. Um, Part of that will be, you know, higher prices and higher fuel prices drive up all the other commodity prices because all of the consumer goods are delivered by a truck most places in the world. Um, at least that's how it goes here in the U.S. So there's some hard decisions that need to be made with politicians, and they need to be realistic with their constituents and explain the circumstances instead of wringing their hands and stalling on support for Ukraine. Personal opinion. Sorry, I'm I'm delving off into how I feel about things. No, no, that's, that's fine. So what, what I want to say is, in you know, just to give anybody who's still listening from the US uh, or Canada, because it's damn late where you guys are. Well, if you're in the West Coast, it's probably fine. It's just past midnight. Um, but just to give you a bit of context. So in, in Hungary, it's about a euro 20 a liter. Just don't forget it. Forget the units. Just focus on the numbers. It's about a euro 20 a liter. Um in Germany, I think the cheapest is about 175, 180. Um, in France, it's I think a, a few pumps might have it under two, but mostly it's going to be well over two and on the 